0: Welcome to the Bell Podcast, produced by Mental Health America of Kentucky. I'm your host, Marcy Timmerman. I'm also pleased to be the Executive Director of MHA Kentucky. Welcome to our show. This month is May's Mental Health Month, and we have a toolkit called Tools to Thrive, focusing on resiliency. We have a couple of handouts that we will put in the show notes showing supporting others, creating healthy routines, and it even has a worksheet to help you do that. Eliminating toxic influences, owning your feelings, connecting with others, and finding the positive after a loss. When we developed this starting about a one year ago at the national level, we had no idea COVID-19 would be here, but resiliency has an interesting place in the COVID-19 narrative. And I'm happy to introduce our guest today, Gretchen Hunt. She has worked with many different types of groups who are underserved and underrepresented populations in our state of Kentucky. And she is going to be talking a little bit about resiliency. And she did do this by phone, so please excuse the audio. But we hope you'll enjoy today's episode.
1: (laughs) So my name is Gretchen Hunt, and I serve as Development Director at the Backside Learning Center. We're a nonprofit located on the backside of Churchill Downs, and our mission is to build community and enrich the lives of equine workers and their families. Prior to that, I've spent nearly two decades advocating on behalf of survivors of violence and other marginalized communities, including immigrant communities, um, in a variety of nonprofit and government settings. And Lastly, I've done a few things outside of that. Um, I ran for office six years ago for the state house and have been involved with Emerge Kentucky, which is a leadership training program for women running for office.
0: Thank you for sharing that part. We decided to discuss resilience as part of our, our mental health month, May is mental health month, and Tools to Thrive, our new toolkit, actually talks about many aspects of resilience. But I know that in your many years of work with all kinds of populations, you've seen resilience firsthand. Um, and I know you give a talk on that regularly, so feel free to talk as long as you like about it. But I was wondering, first of all, like, what is resilience? It's a big word, and not everyone in our audience is familiar with what it really is. I think of
1: resilience as a muscle. Um, It is something that we all have inside of us, and we have to nourish it and stretch it and grow it. And so I think it's an asset that each of us possess. It's certainly malleable. Um, As you know, in the interest of full transparency, we talked about doing this resiliency talk maybe a month or so ago. I was gung-ho, and then I hit a little bit of a wall and thought, you know, I can't speak authentically to this right now. I don't feel that I have that muscle strong. And then a couple of weeks later, I felt like, okay, I've done some work. I'm bouncing back. I can do this talk again. So to me, it's just a little bit of that. But beyond it, resiliency is the ability really to frame any situation that we encounter and to the best of our ability, decide our response to it. We certainly cannot control the factors. There are a lot of systemic forces, particularly the more marginalized we are by race, gender, sexual orientation, poverty, disability, Um, you know, resiliency looks different. But I do think that it's a muscle that everybody has and it's an ability to both bounce back from difficult situations and to reframe situations that we all will face at times in our lives.
0: Thanks for pointing out that there are things that we can't control. I think that within the world of COVID-19 right now, but also our grander scheme is to have these available all the time. Um, So even if it's not the pandemic, when you're listening to us, it is definitely something that we can always practice. And I think that is important to step back and have that moment where you recognize that you can choose how you react to a situation, um, even though you can't always fix the situation, right? Is that something that resilient people do? (laughs)
1: Um, it is. And I think that, you know, we can do a lot of things as a community to enhance resiliency. You know, it's a buzzword right now. um, But I have seen, for example, when I worked in the Office of the Attorney General, and we created the Survivors Council, it was the first of its kind in the nation. And it was um, several survivors of all different crimes who were choosing to act and were given this space, more importantly, systemically, government gave them the space to sit at the table and transform their experiences of suffering, of you know, confronting problems with the justice system, inequality, um, bad outcomes on cases, or lack of prosecution on cases, and they could transform it into something that was positive. And by that, I mean that they were able to sit around a table and create resources for crime victims, weigh in on trainings and do really practical things. So to me, resiliency is also something that we can foster at the community level. And so um, there are ways that we can build that up, not just within ourselves, but within institutions and communities.
0: Do you mind sharing with us some of those ways and ideas
1: that you have? I'd love to hear. (laughs) Yeah. So I think, you know, like any of us, the first work is that we do that work with ourselves. Um, So I often pair resiliency with the ability to take risks. And, you know, I'm an attorney by training. I like to have control over a situation. I like to have a plan. (laughs) Um, I like to take very calculated risks. And so six years ago when I ran for office, that was really outside of my comfort zone. There was a risk of failure, but I didn't really face it. And then when I lost, you know, I got 43 percentage points, right? So it was stark reality, big on the TV screen. I did not win. Um, And that was a hard moment. But what I found from that experience was it was exhilarating afterwards because I thought, you know what? And, And that was not the same. That's not the same as surviving a crisis or anything, but there was still a resiliency lesson in there that... Sometimes we need to nurture resiliency in areas where we take risks and grow. Um, And so the first work, I think, with resiliency is to do that. Then there's the second level, which I've learned so much about from survivors that I've worked with, which is about how do you create resiliency? I've seen that fostered through groups. Um, So the Survivors Council is one example. I have seen resiliency really... Um, established when people feel validation from leaders at the top who acknowledge that they are not broken, that in fact, surviving through crisis can be an asset. You have things to teach us. You know, one of the things I, I was reminded of early on in this pandemic is the fact that a number of survivors of violence that I knew were saying, you know, I've already lived through things harder than this. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. People have a lot to teach us. So it's not to at all to romanticize suffering, or to, to romanticize situations that are challenging. There is power in owning that experience, and not. Um, I want to be also very clear. It doesn't mean reliving that experience and just telling your story all the time. That can be emotionally draining. That's sometimes more for the audience to kind of feel that. I'm talking about just saying, you know, I've lived through being incarcerated or having um, an addiction or surviving sexual assault or child sexual abuse, and this is what I've learned from that that will be helpful for others, that can make the way better for others.
0: So as a community and as a state, since we are a statewide MHA, we tend to look at the state level, um, but we also work with local communities, especially those where there's not already an established mental health advocacy organization or established voice. So are, are there any tips you would have for us as an organization or our audience members who, are, who we consider part of our membership for building that kind of resiliency from a mental health standpoint at the community level, especially um, as we look at our more rural communities where that might be something that, you know, they're, they're impacted more heavily by COVID-19. So I would love to hear what you have, especially for rural, but if you have any other general ideas.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first reality is to not see people as problems or to not see people as the worst thing that has happened to them. Um, of course, my sisters and brothers, friends, colleagues who work in eastern Kentucky, rural communities know that they are often stereotyped and seen as um, the same as my friends who live in um, you know, the west end of Louisville or communities that have been redlined and subject to a lot of racial inequality. So it's about again, finding what are those community assets and those strengths. Mm -hmm. So I really love right now that the governor is emphasizing the actions that people are doing on the ground and kind of flipping our scales of who we think of as really valuable labor force participants. Mm -hmm. And I think the same of communities that have gone through historical and repeated crises, you know, tornadoes, slavery, inequality, redlining, racism, how do you still look at how people survived and the really concrete ways. Mm-hmm. Was it that church women in an organization um, <laughs> got together and provided support? You know, a lot of communities, as you know, don't regularly access our community mental health centers. Mm-hmm. So, what have been ways that people have worked on mental health and well being that can be used? Um, and the last thing I'll say is that, you know, there's research that communities that go through crises have downturns but they also have resiliency factors that bounce up so you know there are going to be things that we learn one of the things i think of right now is just the incredible amount of networking and collaboration that's happening the altruistic acts you know people looking out for their elderly neighbor and asking about groceries or you know trying to connect with the kid who lacks a computer we've been doing that at the backside learning center So how do you carry on those resiliency traits of looking out for each other after this crisis is over? And for you all, you're the experts in this field. So talk about the work that you're doing every day and how that helps afterwards. I think it's going to be really important for us to say, look, here's what we're learning right now. How do we concretely keep keep that muscle going after this is over or whatever the new normal is? Yeah, it's important to
0: focus on that new normal, I think. I don't think things are going to go back to snapping back to the way they always were, right? Mm -hmm. And that's okay, because we all are learning from the situations at hand, right? You had mentioned there are some community resiliency factors. Are there specific resiliency factors that come to mind um, that the community level might have, for instance, like a news outlet or something like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think factors are if people already have strong social bonds, so, um, you know, we know that on a on a protective level for families, that means, you know, a stable parent and, and some other supportive factors. But, you know, I think it's each community. I really think it's super culturally specific. You know, I think of our community on the backside. They are overwhelmingly immigrants from Mexico and Guatemala by strict education measurements. They are third to sixth grade Education, their kids, of course, are going to college and succeeding in school in spite of those odds. Um, But there are a lot of assets in that community. You know, people figure out an informal way to structure childcare, probably even during this epidemic, Mm -hmm. um, to collaborate in a communal fashion. So it really is looking at each community. And I think that um, part of it is from the dominant culture and those of us in positions of power to ask people. And it's the same as if when I was a lawyer working with survivors of domestic violence, what has worked for you in the past? You know, what have you done that has worked Mm -hmm. to bounce back? You know, when you were getting up every morning to make breakfast for your kids, when you were in an argument and getting emotionally battered all last night, what got you up that next morning? Mm -hmm. Um, So to recognize those strengths. So again, I can't stress that enough. You know, we're seeing resiliency. In countless ways. Lastly, I will say that resiliency doesn't mean you are a hundred percent. Just in the same transparent way that I said, you know, <laughs> I was feeling okay, and I have a lot of privilege. I can work from home safely right now. I have groceries. Neither of us have been unemployed. You know, there's a lot of factors that keep me safer. But even still, we all hit those. So resi- resiliency doesn't mean you're you're a hundred percent. It just means you're working towards that. You're working towards whatever the situation is. Seeing what's worked for you, strengthening that and going. And then for leaders and policymakers to look at communities in terms of what assets do they possess rather than being problems to solve.
0: At MHA, we'd strongly support the peer support model of mental health, where we have peers at the table, nothing, you know, nothing about me without me. I think you hear that, I'm sure, with a lot of other groups as well. And we would strongly advocate for that. At the local level and the state level, especially, um, the state level, you know, there's a seat for a peer on the Medicaid TAC, which we think is really important. Um, not necessarily a mental health peer, but someone who is on Medicaid actually mm-hmm. getting it as a, table, as a seat at the table. We find those kinds of structural things good. And you're right, those do do strengthen ours resiliency overall, because we can look to that person. What works for you? Um, yeah. And I'm hearing also from you that framing the, the situation in a strengths-based conversation seems to be really crucial um, to all of us. And I think that's good for just mental health practice in general. So thanks for sharing that as well. At Backside Learning Center, uh, what kind of things from a mental health standpoint do you see that you all are seeing or experiencing or promoting?
1: Yeah, so a couple of things and we were just having a discussion because there are a lot of gaps that our community faces, um, language gaps, um, eligibility for certain mental health services and health insurance. There are a lot of gaps in our community. There are very few Spanish-speaking therapists in the community. You know, there's sometimes cultural resistance. We already had a community. If I think about the, a lot of the men that it will be returning back just in less than a week to the track, when the track opens back up again, a lot of them are single. They're far away from families in other States or, or, uh, sorry, in other countries, there's a lot of social isolation. You know, there's a lot of men who may suffer quietly. So I think about that in addition to other stresses that our families face, so we try to really build community. That's the core of our mission. And so we do that in a lot of ways, just reaching out to people. Right now it's virtually. So we're, we're really going to have to figure out how to do that. Because, you know, I'll tell you, yesterday I was looking at pictures. We're doing Kentucky Kids Day next Tuesday for the Backside Learning Center. And I was looking for pictures. And it was really a bit of grief to look at all the pictures of us physically gathered together. Think about wow, that's going to be a while, and yet we we connect people first and foremost to us to circles of support. Then we also do the concrete referrals to mental health services. We do things like our uh, family resource coordinator Mariah Garcia does mindfulness with our kids in our after-school program. You know, we begin with mindfulness each time. Uh, right when COVID happened, she did a, a short meditation video with folks. So we try to tap into, again, those muscles. And I will say we have included those from prior to this. So again, we're, tr- we're sort of saying to people, okay, now's the time you want to exercise that and, and work on it. But I will say that immigrants and refugees are groups that really could use a lot more structural mental health and well-being resources.
0: Agreed, and and we are working to do that. I don't know if you knew about our partnership with Family Community Clinic. We have the free mental health services there for those who are uninsured, and they do have interpreters on site. So, just to remind folks of that, um, it's a wonderful service that we have. We had Dr. Weinstein on the podcast a couple of episodes ago. So, um, talking about that service, and it will be opening up soon, I hope, um, as soon as it can be done safely, of course, for everybody involved. You had talked a little bit about how sharing a story how sharing your story over and over again can be reliving. I think that's really important for folks Um, in the mental health community. We talk about sharing your story, but we also talk about framing your story for success and strength. Um, Does that kind of resonate with what you were talking about? Or do you have examples of that being done well?
1: Absolutely. So I think that, you know, on the one hand, those of us who work in fields of, you know, I work with a community that that, um, checks a lot of boxes of, poverty, you know, first-generation immigrant, um, a lot of these boxes that we check off for grants um, in your setting, folks may have moved through very traumatic mental health experiences um, or traumatic experiences of of sexual assault, child sexual abuse, other crises. And there's a need sometimes for us to impress upon the general public what that's like and to engender empathy. Mm -hmm. The problem comes, I think, when we A, do not allow people who have survived traumatic experiences to to decide when and how and how much to tell about their experience. Mm -hmm. And B, we almost create a structure where people feel like their only value is when they tell that story. Mm -hmm. So here's what I would say a couple of things. One, it is what you talked about, how you frame the story. But it's also the decision of the people who are asking for the story to structure it in a way that's really about consent. And that's really about recognizing that that person has expertise and can talk about a lot of things. So in other words, someone could say, I have survived child sex trafficking, period. Not say any details or anything about that and say, I really then know DCBS, child welfare, mental health counselors. Here are some kinds of questions that you could ask to a child that might let them feel comfortable to tell you what's going on. And let me share one experience when I worked with a doctor or nurse and they asked this question and it shut me down. That seems categorically different than someone saying, this is the harm that happened to me. And it's not to say they can't, but there are ways that people can share parts of their stories that inform, that aren't just what we think about as almost re-exploiting the survivor or re-exploiting someone or you know, walking in their shoes because that can be very taxing. Mm -hmm. Second thing I want to say is the more people we have sharing their stories, I think that's healthier because you also, you know, you mentioned on that one board that there's one person who receives Medicaid. I would suggest that we start making our boards and our committees more representative of people who've lived through difficult things. If we can make our services and our policies accessible to those folks, we'll help everybody like me. But If you have more people telling their stories, there's also not that kind of pressure on an individual person to be the one spokesperson for an issue or to carry that weight. So I have seen those two ways. If you really clearly set it up, and when we were um, working with the Survivors Council, we came up with a list of suggestions if people give a talk, um, that they have a support person with them, that they're able to really ask questions, to make decisions about if people are going to repost what they say or take pictures or not. So I think it's really just breaking it down and almost walking the individual through what is that going to look like and how do you have choices all along the way. And I think that's really, really vital. I have seen in the field of human trafficking, for example, that there's a lot of emphasis on sort of salacious storytelling and it really can harm people in the long run. And it doesn't teach us that much about, about the crime itself. Our Tools to Thrive talks about
0: um, owning your feelings. And I think to me, some of that is owning your own story, right? And owning how you're, how you want it to be told. So I find that really interesting. We had already talked about kind of finding the positive after loss as well, or after a a stressful time, but we haven't really talked about eliminating toxic influences. I was wondering if you ever see, especially at a community level, those toxic influences that we should be looking at from a resiliency standpoint. So anything that would be negative to
1: resilience. Part of it is, is really glossing over that people are differently positioned. So not everyone structurally has the same ability to just say, I'm going to work on resiliency today. You know, it's a privilege to have some of that space to work on it. That's not to say everybody can't do it, but that idea that resiliency is just individual based that you can pull yourself out by your bootstraps, that you can just completely revision the situation and have a better response to it, ignores the systemic factors of inequality, of racism, of sexism, of all the isms, right? So I would say that's a toxic influence. If people are being told, for example, right now, there's a lot of messaging that people should take this time and learn and grow and do all these restorative things or bounce back. And that's toxic. Cause that's another pressure we have. You have to look at resiliency as on the individual level, the community level, governmental level, and really realize what things help resiliency. It sure helps resiliency to have access to free yoga. It sure helps resiliency to be able to call a therapist. It sure helps resiliency to have childcare. You know, it sure helps resiliency if you're a middle-aged man who really doesn't have a good social network to be able to bond with a group of folks that you work out with. You know, um, so those are the concrete things that help support it. So I think it's toxic if you just depend on the individual themselves to entirely be resilient. Um, And then I think the other toxic part is, or the the misperception that resiliency means everything's going to be happy and great. So it's an expectation. Resilience Resiliency just means, I think at its core, you're willing to put one foot in front of the other. You're willing to take that tiny next step. And so a toxic factor might be things that make unrealistic expectations that we can go back to the way things were or that anyone can solve all of our problems. And it really is just, nope, it just means, I can put one foot in front of the other and keep walking. You know, our governor saying, you know, we'll get through this together. That's sort of that resiliency cultural statement that we will do it. We don't know what it looks like, but we're going to take one step at a time. And I will say as a, as a shout out to the governor, I think he's modeled resiliency in many ways. So he's been very transparent talking about how he has dealt with um, anxiety himself, um, going for walks with his dog. He's been very transparent about, ups and downs and he's repeatedly messaged and then he's making the decisions to bring on mental health experts or address those needs so I think he's modeling that from the top down
0: agreed and when he was open about not feeling great that was something that all of us mental health folks were like oh thank goodness someone is talking (laughs) about it right um so yeah that's an awesome point appreciate it is there anything you would
1: like to add at the end here that we hadn't addressed before Folks should definitely look at our resilient, beautiful, strong backside community of workers and their families who support the horse racing industry that we love and hold so dear in Kentucky and to just really think about the people behind the scenes who make that possible and do things to support their well-being and to ensure that they can thrive. So you can check us out at um, our website. That would be great if it could be included um, or just look up the Backside Learning Center.
0: And you're also available on Facebook. Is that right? Or...
1: We are. We're on all the, all the platforms. <laughs> so definitely follow us.
0: All right. And then Kentucky Gives Day, shout out, both Mental Health America of Kentucky and Backside Learning Center are participating in Kentucky Gives Day on May 12th. We're hoping that you will give to both of our organizations. Thank you, Gretchen. And thank you for listening to this episode. One note about Kentucky Gives Day, it is on Tuesday, May 12th, and you can find both of our organizations, Backside Learning Center and Mental Health America of Kentucky at kygives.org. We will have that link in the show notes as well. Thank you to Jennifer Longworth of Bourbon Barrel Podcasting for her sound editing skills. Thanks to Adam Safkoplas for the bell theme music. Thank you for listening. Remember, there's no health without mental health. We hope you'll take care of yours. You can find... The toolkit and more at mhaky.org.